Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at HL and I'm with Sarah Coles, our Personal Finance Analyst. This is the first in a series of podcasts in which we'll be bringing you the latest from the big movers on the markets and analysis of trends and stocks to watch with our experts. We'll also take you through the economic developments that shape the world of investments. We'll have a deep sector guide with experts who can give us unique insights from the heart of key industries. And we'll be catching up with fund managers about the trends driving their portfolios in the current market. It's great to be here, Sarah. You've been up with the larks again in your regular early morning radio slot. Coffee firmly in hand, I assume. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is about my third. Uh, it, it is it's very exciting. Just just think when people ask you what you were doing when Switch Your Money On launched, you'll be able to say you were here at the beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> so in this episode, we're starting with a sector that's very close to my heart, or should I say my stomach? It's the restaurant sector in an episode we're calling Eat and Greet. We'll be speaking to Morvith Richards, a restaurateur who runs a business in North London. We'll be looking at the hospitality industry and finding out what it's been like on the roller coaster ride of running a restaurant in a uniquely challenging time. We'll be talking furlough, business rates, Freedom Day, and how the business has come through the last 18 months. Morvith, hello. Thanks for taking a break from service to talk to us. Hi, hello. Lovely being here. We're also going to be speaking to Sophie Lund-Yates, a senior equity analyst at Harbury's Lansdowne, who's been looking in depth at this sector about the broader themes dominating the market, the future of the restaurant sector, and a couple of interesting stocks to watch in this space. And we'll be catching up with Steve Clayton, manager of the HL Selects UK Growth, UK Income Shares and Global Growth Funds, who joins us for our fundamental section. We'll be asking him what he thinks the future will hold for UK companies as the economy gets back on track. And we're going to take a sneak peek into the weird world of investment, looking at some of the more crazily named cryptocurrencies from the Tiger King token to PooCoin. Yeah, with plenty of words of caution. But first, let's check out the latest inflation data because fears about rising inflation have caused a few jitters in stock markets over recent months, haven't they, Sarah? What do the latest numbers from the Consumer Price Index show? Well, July's inflation figure was out last week and it showed inflation is up again to 2.5%. So it's worth bearing in mind is this is quite a way above the Bank of England's 2% target and it's up again from 2.1% in May, which puts it at the highest it's been for almost three years. And I think it helps to look at this with the sort of the backdrop of the US where inflation's now at 5.4%. So it's it's quite, you know, it's, we've been quite used to low inflation for quite a while and now we're starting to see it tick up again. So the demand fueled recovery is clearly driving prices then? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So in, in the UK, some of the biggest sectors pushing prices up were fuel, second-hand cars and clothes. So if you look at fuel, the cost of filling up the car is up, now wait for this, it's, it's fifth in a year, which is wow. a faster rise than we've seen for more than a decade. And it's partly because we're looking back to prices during the lows of the lockdown last year, but it's also because prices are rising. So Fuel prices have been sparked by by two things. One is increasing global demand because you know people around the world are looking to to sort of travel more and make more. And also there was a big hoo-ha with OPEC for a while, which is the oil producing cartel. They just couldn't come to an agreement on increasing global supply. So that seems to be easing. But I think for a while that was definitely putting pressure on prices. One of the interesting ones is secondhand car prices, which have really got up. So um, there's a couple of things driving that as well. So the first one is we're really thinking how we're going to get about in an environment where so many people feel a bit less safe on public transport. 
So that's boosted demand. And meanwhile, a shortage of chips means supply problems with new cars. So more people who might otherwise have gone out and bought a new car are thinking, oh, I think I'll look for a second-hand model. So these two things coming together are pushing up the prices of second-hand cars. And we often hear about this so-called Goldilocks measure when we're talking about inflation. Tell me about the potential bugbears in all of this. Yeah, so this this idea of Goldilocks. So if inflation is too low, then there's concerns that the economy might stagnate. And if it's too high, then it can get in the way of growth. So businesses can really struggle with inflation because they have to deal with rising input and commodity prices. They've also got rising labour costs and then possibly also the rising cost of borrowing. So all these things make it really difficult to function. Um, it also reduces expectations of earnings growth because future earnings, they lose their value after inflation, which really hurts growth stocks in particular because so much of their earnings are further in the future. So if interest rates rise, it also raises the risk free rate of return. So investors demand more growth in order to make it worth taking the risk associated with stocks. So, so what are the repercussions then on our wider finances as well? Because they're pretty wide, aren't they? Yes, I mean, it's kind of it's the, it's the rising prices issue. I mean, obviously, people who remember much, much higher rates. I mean, this this isn't, you know, the Weimar Republic. So you're not really going to notice price increases so much. But what tends to happen is prices will creep up like this over time, which means it's it's hard. It's hard to spot. But it does mean it pushes you slightly up every time you go shopping and it pushes you over your budget. Um, for savers, the other the sort of the other side of it is it means you can't match or beat inflation in any standard bank account at the moment, and that's however long you're prepared to mix your to fix your money for. So even if you fix for five years, you can't keep pace with inflation, and so that means that your money is getting eroded. The fact the spending power of your money kind of drops each month when you've got it in a savings account. And the big question investors around the world want to know is what happens next, and there is a split view on this, isn't there? Yes, I mean, if, if only I had my crystal ball with me. Um, but I mean, at the moment, we are a long way away from runaway inflation. Um, and we're not outside the realms of what's been predicted either. So the Bank of England said this would happen. They said it would be a temporary phenomenon. And they said, you know, when the, the low prices from last lockdown sort of drop out of the figures, that's going to help automatically to, to lower inflation. Um, it's not worried by the rise. And it, and it said at this stage, it really isn't expecting to raise rates in the immediate future to bring it back down again. But there's, there's always there's still the chance that these forecasts aren't right. So the, the government has spent more than a year printing money and then handing it out to people at record levels. And so it, it might mean that as, as soon as we feel more confident, we might go and spend our way to higher prices. And if that happens, we could see higher inflation persist. But predictions are so hard at the moment. I mean, if, if new variants force more of the economy to close, for example, it could mean we're back onto one another form of lockdown and inflation could surprise on the downside. Yeah, it's certainly not a cheery thought, is it, particularly unless you happen, of course, to run one of the online tech giants. And that's the cue for Sophie Lund-Yates to grace the airwaves and tell us more about a couple of those huge giants that have boomed during uh, lockdown. Sophie, Amazon's results are out next week. The first without Jeff Bezos in the CEO seat. He's a little too busy right now planning commercial flights to space, isn't he? But his presence will linger on, not least because he still holds the role of executive chairman. Yes, hi, great, great to be here. And you're absolutely right. He's got um got a few things on his mind at the moment. Um, 
And it's definitely right to say that it's kind of a shake up to the status quo and Amazon's ticked along pretty nicely with him in the, in the driving seat. Um, but his presence and oversight is, is really going to remain a, a key factor in the running of Amazon. You know, as chairman, he's still going to be holding a lot of responsibility. A lot of that strategic direction and oversight is still going to be coming from, from Bezos. So it's not it's not the huge shake up that everyone might might think it is. We've been talking about rising inflation. So what would that mean for Amazon? So that's quite a big question, really, where, where Amazon is, is concerned. And it's it's kind of there's two sides to the to the coin. When you first look at it, um, as you were talking about, Sarah, you know, they've got an enormous workforce, which means that rising inflation might look like a source of concern if those labor costs are going to to rise massively. But in reality, Amazon's staff costs per sale are much, much lower than traditional retailers when, when you think about it. Um, and also its huge financial resources mean it's not as much of a worry as it would be for a traditional player either. Um, the other thing to really keep in mind is also, as you were talking about, is in an inflationary environment, um, people want to spend less. You know, they feel that their their purchasing power, their spending power is massively diminished and they tend to then shift towards what they perceive to be good value options. And Amazon's entire reputation is based on, on you know, having that proposition and, and, and being better value. And it's famous for its low prices. So that should hold it in good stead as well. So with Andy Jassy now at the helm, who was handpicked for the role following his tenure, heading up Amazon Web Services, Sophie, do you think we'll see much of a change of direction or will it be pretty much business as usual? So the web services proposition is incredibly exciting. Um, it's much, much higher margin than the retail um, operations. So if you're looking at it as a future growth opportunity, that is exciting, particularly if you consider the working from home culture that has been developed over the pandemic. So that's that is a long term growth catalyst. And building that part of the business is really a priority. You know, sales rose 32 percent last quarter, which is enormous. Um, but right now, where we are in the current moment, it's really important to remember that the Amazon is still very much a retail company. And um, that's the main engine driver. Um, and that is not going to change immediately. I think one of the big changes that Amazon has been making is this bigger push into food through things like Amazon Fresh and its type with Morrison's here in the UK. Interestingly, though, after a surge in sales over the pandemic, there's been a bit of a drop off in retail food sales because the restaurants and bars have opened back up and people are allowed to eat inside and all these other exciting things. So we want to know whether the restaurant sector might be the new comeback kid. There's clearly pent up demand from customers who've been starved from the dining experience for so long, but it seems there's still plenty of potential hiccups ahead. Morford Richards is the founder of Greenberry Cafe, an all-day dining restaurant in North London. She's here to give us an insight into just what it's been like spinning plates during this extraordinary year. Welcome, Wolveth. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so tell us, what, what's, on the, what's on the menu for today? Uh, well, we've just finished setting up, ready to open the restaurant. Uh, we, we are, as you said, uh, we are an all-day dining restaurant. We have a big brunch menu, or we, we're big on brunch, which we sell till 3pm um, every day, and then we morph into an a la carte menu during the evenings, it very much sort of focused on 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 good produce and and um, and seasonally changing menu. Now we're hearing a lot more Beth, about the issues with staff shortages at the moment. Is that a real problem you're facing? Are the pings from the contact tracing app becoming more of an issue? Susanna, yes, it is an absolute problem and a big nightmare for a lot of businesses, including ourselves. We furloughed our entire team throughout the 
um, uh, through all the numerous lockdowns and um, have protected the team and, and now have reopened and most of the team fortunately are still with us. Um, but of course it's, yes, it is a problem with, with people being, um, being pinged until to self-isolate. So it's, uh, we, we had to close for a couple of days because we had a COVID case and, and um, six of our um, staff were forced to self-isolate. And so we basically had to give everybody else a couple of days off in order not to overwork them. Um, and it's also of course a problem because we just don't have the same level of workforce now um, after the pandemic than we did before. A lot of, a lot of uh, people have just gone home. Um, we, I think it's a combination of the pandemic and the Brexit effect. Um, and there's just huge staff shortages. It's well documented, but it's a it's a real real problem for hospitality. Are some of your staff actually being poached? Have you had instances of that of people trying to come in yeah. and lure them away? Well, I won't name and shame anybody or any businesses, but yes, we have actually had um, flagrant um, attempts to poach our staff, where whereby um, major companies are coming in and. and giving out cards to our staff and offering them jobs. Um, so so I, I suspect that's going on quite a lot, <laughs> um, just due to the staff shortages. And of course, there are some very famous in, you know, instances of restaurants such as the Gavroche um, that is no longer serving lunch because they just don't have the staff and are only opening in the evening. We at the moment are opening our seven days a week lunch and dinner. So <laughs> it's really much fingers crossed. And uh, the story of the pandemic um, from, from our point of view has been a one of um, constant adaptability. That was one of the things I was going to ask you. So, what, to what kind of, how much did you have to rely on things like curbside pickups and takeaways and those sorts of things during lockdowns? And just before we were allowed to reopen inside, um, we did to do some curbside pickup and, and and delivery. It was it it served a function. We didn't like it. We don't like putting our food into takeaway um, packets. It's not really us, but it's again we had to adapt towards it. And um, I, I think some restaurants have absolutely thrived and they've done better with their pickups than they ever did before. Um, but it was it. There were other things that we did in order to try and um, in in order to try and. Um, keep the business going and to reinvent ourselves and we I hear cocktails were pretty popular at one point in the summer yes I mean the takeaway cocktails are certainly very popular Um, but we also um, we also built some some shacks that we put outside uh, of the the forecourts of our neighbours which we called castaway shacks and we were literally made from bits of bamboo that we found in a garden set bought in a garden centre and we created these frames and we would put them up our, our five castaway shacks every night and then we'd pull them down every night and it was a huge endeavor um and it, it it you know and i'm absolutely so proud of my team that kind of just you know sort of it, it was just extraordinary the, the 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 kind of resilience and the positivity that they showed just doing these things and just getting on with it but it's not been easy trying to navigate all the rules and regulations as far as local authorities are concerned. What type of planning you've got? Is it temporary? Can it become permanent? And I suppose that's a headache that lots of different restaurants up and down uh, the street where you operate and, of course, the entire neighbourhood are facing. It still is a constantly changing landscape. Um, but I think, again, I come back to 
um, the idea that you have to be very, very quick to, to, to adapt to things. Um, one of my friends last year, when we just um, gone into the first lockdown, just said, you know, don't hang on to the riverbanks, you know, just let it go, go with the river, just adapt. And I think it was the best bit of advice I actually received because it forced us to really just let go of any kind of idea that we had about the structure of our business. And we had to really, really rethink things. Um, but of course it was you know, challenging. <laughs> I would say incredibly challenging because the, the landscape kept on shifting. Once we just reopened, we'd had the second lockdown. Then we of course kind of got ourselves up and going and then got ready for Christmas. And of course we went back into lockdown and that was a huge shock for everybody. I, I think the pandemic has taught me the power of the community really that we're if we remain we remain part of the community and the community uh, was very much there in terms of supporting us and with with our takeaway menu and our deliveries and just and then coming back together so that is a it's the power of the of, of resilience and the power of the community which are lessons I take away from this. And during this process, I mean, it must have been incredibly hard. Was there ever a stage where you thought, actually, you know, can we carry on doing this? Or have you just, was it things like the strength in the community and the and the business that sort of kept you going through it? It was a survival, it felt like a survival instinct, actually. Um, I think I spent the first few weeks staring at my cash flow and, and, and my projections and looking and saying, okay, I'm going to reduce my project, my, my, my turnover by 20%. And then it kind of got th- pushed to... 40% and then you know you start and then I just tore up the whole the whole all the papers and just thought right I'm not even going to look at this I'm just going to just kind of let's just get out there and 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 motivate everybody I'm very very lucky to have had a, a, a strong team that 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 work all of us work together you know really really proud proud of them also you know many many Europeans one of the chaps that actually built my castaway shacks for me is was is our one of our kitchen porters from Romania. He is an his absolute gold dust, you know. And he and I'm I'm I hope I only really really hope that we will see some return of of we'll see an increase and we'll be able to work out some kind of visa program to um, mitigate against the in my opinion, disastrous effects of, of, of the loss of labour from the Brexit effect. It must have been so tough, uh, the entire experience, because as you say, this um, was already beginning in a way before the pandemic hit, the fear that there would be this trickle away of staff. And during uh, the pandemic, just how important was uh, the furlough scheme? Did that help? And did that uh, enable you to, to retain the, the cream of the crop? of your staff? It basically enabled us to keep everybody able to pay their mortgages and, and able to survive. I think it cost the company to, to, to keep your team on furlough because you're paying um, your, their, their national insurance and their pensions and, and whatever top ups you give. So it was for, from a company point of view, it was quite costly. Um, but from a moral point of view and from a and now from still having that team there, you know, it was it, it was very, very important. You've talked a lot about the resilience of your staff and the enthusiasm of your staff, but it must take a lot out of you as 
as the person in charge of the business, leading the business to keep trying to inspire them to work and keep coming in under these conditions. What does it take out of you as a person? I quite freely admit that I don't think I was sort of um, um, bonny face the hot the entire time, and I must have sort of come in in a in a in a bad mood on numerous occasions, and and I, I'm sure that it was a very very stressful experience. But I think we all we all um, isn't there some saying about you know you, that you should never stand still, that you should always you know the you that you should always keep moving, and I suppose well we didn't have a choice here. We we had to had to keep moving and you had to keep moving as a person and you had to keep moving in in terms of of thinking of yourself as a uh, as a leader uh and thinking of yourself as somebody who could inspire um motivate people to keep going in in very very difficult times and i certainly don't think of myself as that person um but i feel you know i feel that i um did demonstrate a, a degree of resilience. You know, it's a good old sort of um, Welsh Welsh stock here, sharing my old kind of resilience to things. Um, for, and 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 I think that's what I learned. And, and I come back again to to saying that if we just adapt all the time, if we have the power, if we just have the 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 flexibility to adapt towards things, I think we're far far likelier to be able to. To, to be able to navigate through very, very uncertain times. It's certainly been a really, really challenging time. And it's something that's been felt right across the industry. So Sophie Lund-Yates has taken a deeper dive into the sector and is back with us now. Sophie, this sector's had its fair share of challenges before the crisis, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's a, a pretty fair way to, to, to put it. Um, this has been pretty much a worst case scenario, you know, as we've just been hearing for most businesses, um, you know, not only with the closures themselves and the, the huge headache that, that that creates, but grappling with those rising commodity costs and staff shortages as well. Um, it's also not a case that, you know, we're, we're out of the woods yet. You know, we've seen this with the amount of people being being pinged, as they're calling it. Um, there is a lot resting on how isolation rules and, and social distancing as well, um, you know, how those preferences play out in, in the next few months. And the pandemic's taken its toll because a lot of restaurants haven't made it through. Do you, do you think this is the last of the closures? It's it's really sad to say, but but sadly not. Um, you know, if we're looking more at the the, the chains, um, the middle of the road food chains were already in quite a tricky spot before all of this hit. Um, you know, falling high street footfall, overburdensome leases, you know, rent payments local competition as well, but we're all taking their toll in, in quite a big way. Um, and these problems still exist um, and they've, they've just been made worse by, by COVID really, um, which has also boosted demand for deliveries, which a lot of the chains are, are less geared up for. And do you think among the listed restaurants, whether some of them seem to be struggling in particular? In all honesty, I've actually been quite surprised by the rate of rebound in a lot of the hospitality stocks. Um, although, as I've said, that doesn't mean, you know, we're, we're out of the woods yet. Um, when you look at, you know, some of the, the bigger pub chains, so something like Weatherspoons, um, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch from here. You know, they have a cheaper food and drink offering, so that should offer some protection um, if we head into a nasty economic climate. Um, but the flip side of that is that their, their margins um, are thinner than their competitors. You know, their strategy is they might charge you less per pint 
but they're relying on the fact that you will therefore buy more pints to make up the difference. Um, so those thinner margins um, meant that lockdowns had a particularly harsh effect for them. Um, so that's one to watch kind of when you're looking at the UK. Um, internationally, I think Starbucks is going to be um, warranting some attention. Um, the valuation's pretty frothy, if you like, right now. Um, and that, that working from home culture that we've developed, um, you know, there's a lot less commuters on the road. And how is that going to going to play out? I do really wonder what the shape of Starbucks recovery is, is going to look like there. Mm. Yeah. And of course, like more of some have, have really rolled with the punches. Are there any that have performed particularly well? Um, okay, so this one probably won't come as a as a huge shock. Um, McDonald's has proved pretty resilient. Um, I'm the first to admit I hit the drive through in the heat this, over the last few days to try and cool down with a McFlurry. Um, so some markets there, you know, they they haven't been completely immune. Um, some markets have have suffered, um, but a lot of restaurants and key key markets were able to keep trading even when things got got really hairy during during the pandemic. You know, and that came to just completely phenomenal rapid efforts to boost their digital and delivery capacity. It was, it was really impressive to watch, actually. Also, something to keep in mind with, with McDonald's is that they're based on a franchise model. So that offers a lot of protection when things go wrong um, because McDonald's isn't actually on the hook for the day-to-day running of, of many of its, its restaurants. It does also throw up other issues, you know, in terms of can their franchisees pay them what they need to pay, but that's something that's going to play out over the next few months. But on the whole, that franchise model does offer quite a lot of protection. Of course, for the the positive things surrounding McDonald's at the moment, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Really, some some risks to the investment case that 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 need mentioning. And the first of those really would be the growing concern from kind of the ESG investing side of things. You know, there's a, a backlash going on about mass produced meat and what that means, and and there's a lot of people that are really quite angry about that. So when you're looking at McDonald's over the long term, um, there is potentially something there that they are going to have to consider. And that could that could be a problem in the future. The other thing more kind of immediate is the staff shortages that we're that we're hearing about at the moment. Um, you know, this is more of a problem in some markets than others. Um, but that could that could disrupt their their operations. So what that is going to look like and how that's going to play out is, is going to be really interesting to watch as well. So it seems like you're providing a lot of support for the drive-through industry. <laughs> Sophie, thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. Such a, a difference. Various chains and independent restaurants um, are coping so differently. I've got different outlooks. Let me bring back in Morpeth now. How are you feeling about the future? Do you think staycations will help the business? And what do you see a bit more longer term? I do feel positive about the future. And people were so, you know, from our experience, were so pleased to be back socially, you know, fed, actually, frankly, fed up of, of all the takeaways and the deliveries and really just wanting to get back into sitting around a table um, with their friends or family and socialising and interacting with the staff. And that's what it was all about. And that's what kind of really... Um, for us, it's what it's all about. Is that's what hospitality is. It's about um, entertaining people and looking after people. Well, Mother, thanks so much for talking to us on Switch Your Money On. It's been really lovely to have you on the show. You can get back to business now and setting up all those castaway shacks outside. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we like to get down to the fundamentals in this podcast and talk about the big concepts 
fund managers hold in mind when putting together their picks. Steve Clayton is with us now, the HL Select Funds Manager. Welcome, Steve, to the podcast. Thanks, Susanna. So let's focus on the UK's prospects now. We've heard a lot of talk about the roaring 20s. There was hope the party would have kicked off by now, but do you think there are still quite a few party poopers hanging around? <laughs> well, I think the first thing is that from a lot of UK companies, the pandemic has been incredibly tough, you know, tougher even than wartime, because when we go back all those years, no one was actually shuttering UK businesses. The government was, was trying to keep the economy moving. So the pandemic has been incredibly difficult for so many companies. And indeed, we would have seen far more shutting down if it hadn't been for the government stepping up with all of its pandemic support schemes. You know, when when things first broke last year, unemployment forecasts absolutely rocketed. And furlough took the edge off what actually happened. And, and now expectations for where unemployment is going to go to are actually only about 1% higher than they were before COVID appeared. But there are still a lot of people on furlough. And how they get reabsorbed back into the economy as, uh, as the furlough scheme winds down is going to be really crucial for the next year or two. And generally, the economy has been picking up, but there have been some mixed signals along the way. And the, the latest the latest official figures showed that the, the economy was expanding, but it wasn't doing so quite at the pace that, uh, that some analysts had forecast. Things like the outlook for travel arrangements are still really unclear, but the domestic economy is still looking better, though, than it seemed likely this time last year. But of course, in, in the process, the government has taken on an awful lot of extra borrowings to cushion businesses and, and livelihoods through the, uh, the last tough 18 months. And sooner or later, all of those chickens are going to come home to roost. How do you try and insulate funds then against the cyclical nature of some stocks? Like, as we've been discussing in this podcast, in, in the hospitality sector. Well, at HL Select, our investment philosophy is based around the idea of owning the strong. We, we try to find those businesses where demand for what they do isn't completely dependent on the state of the economy. We think that if our funds have a, a core of, a, a solid core of really resilient stocks, then we can get through some pretty tough times without taking too many hits. And that, that is how it's played out so far in this pandemic. For instance, we, we had limited exposure to, the, to hospitality stocks as we, uh, as we went into the pandemic. That's mainly because it's, it's pretty hard to find truly differentiated businesses in that in that part of the economy. And we saw how the few that we did hold were being impacted. And, and we actually ended up getting rid of one and doubling down on another. And then when sentiment got down to absolutely rock bottom levels last year, we, we also took the opportunity to bring a new name into our, our UK income shares portfolio. Uh, which was a pub business with a, a very strong freeholder state in the uh, in the in the London and Southern counties, and it was it was available at a price way below the pre-pandemic level. Now these businesses are cyclical, but we've managed the risk by limiting the overall exposure to cyclicality and offsetting it with with other holdings that have strongly recurring revenues. And above all, we, we make sure that the stocks we hold have balance sheets that are strong enough to see them over the bumps in the road without the wheels falling off. Yeah, it's also become clear, hasn't it, that industries have had to go transformations in 10 months that they didn't expect for 10 years. As we heard from Moffat earlier, 
They've had to be adaptable, resilient. And we've been talking about the big shift of delivery for the restaurant trade. Would you say in many ways it's been the survival of the fittest? I I think it absolutely has. I mean, change was not optional. If you couldn't reach customers through the digital channel, you, you were often completely cut off from them when the pandemic broke. And lots of companies have had to raise their digital skills in a hurry. Something that that they would have spent months or years doing before the pandemic had suddenly to be compressed into into weeks or months. And and I think along the way, lots of them have learned an awful lot about how to change at pace and, and to build flexibility into their business models. And we see that as being potentially really positive for profitability going forwards. You know, the fittest did do best. And there are a lot of businesses that would have closed their doors but were kept going by government support. Now, how well they cope as the supporters withdraw is going to be really important to watch. Uh, what we've tried to do is spend a lot of time during the pandemic working out which ones are actually going to come out of this stronger than they were before they went in because those are where the opportunities are going to be. As far as the vaccine rollout is concerned, the UK is considered to be a world leader and this is seen as the catalyst for rapid recovery. What can companies learn from this? You're absolutely right to say that the the vaccine rollout has been a UK success story. And it's all about the benefits of diversification. Just as HL Select diversifies our investors' money across multiple shares and industries, the UK pursued purchase agreements with multiple different experimental vaccines, ensuring that we would have some supplies under almost any circumstances. And as a result, we've we've come out of the traps faster than, uh, than most of the rest of the world. And that's going to give us the chance to bounce back sooner and stronger than a lot of other nations. Despite the rapid vaccine rollout, the pandemic has been extremely harsh for so many companies. They've had to face rounds of cost-cutting to survive. But do you think companies will emerge as leaner, fitter and more efficient? I think in some cases that is exactly what's going to happen. Businesses have had to reinvent themselves through this lockdown. And a lot of that was about taking out costs as well as fast forwarding those digital skills. Recovery is now underway. And we think that leaner, digitally nimble businesses should be able to make more profit per pound of sales. So we could be on the cusp of a period of extraordinarily strong profit growth. And the UK economy may well be leading the charge. We're going to be watching the interim results season, which which kicks off in the next few weeks really closely to see who's making the most progress on this front. So what do you make about the number of private equity firms circling UK listed companies right now? Do you think it still shows that uh, some UK assets are still significantly undervalued? I think cheap money is a huge boon for private equity firms. If they can fund acquisitions cheaply, then the potential gains that they can make are all the higher. They do tend to take the longer-term view, and they don't mind taking on the short-term economic risks if they think the uh, the target company is attractive enough. And UK stocks have lagged those in the US by a massive margin for, for, for years now. So it, it's not really a surprise to see that there is interest in private equity in some UK names. We've benefited already in in HL Select from seeing bids announced for some of our holdings, ranging from Merlin Entertainments or Fidesa and BCA. Sand Group, which we hold in our UK Select funds, has has been approached by Sinbone, and we'll see if that one goes over the wire in the coming weeks.
to the place. Dee, well, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk and find out more about the prospects for the UK. Steve Clayton, fund manager at HL There. HL Select Funds are run by Hargreaves Lansdowne Fund Managers Limited, our sister company. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And next, we're going to peer into the cage of the weird world of investments. And the crypto craze is continuing, Susanna. Yes, it certainly is. I've been speaking to journalists this week, urging caution yet again for traders who are being enticed into the crypto jungle. As you know, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, the city watchdog, has been very vociferous about this, warning investors they could lose all their money if they're indulging risky crypto assets. And almost every day there are new coins and tokens being slotted into the crypto slot machine. And the names of these new coins really are getting weirder by the minute. So I've got a quick fire quiz for you, Sarah. Which of these cryptocurrencies is real and which ones have I just made up? First one, PooCoin. I heard you mention this earlier. That's definitely got to be made up. Not at all. It is one of the latest to be pushed out and traders really would be wise to hold their noses and keep their distance. Because the problem is in the crypto world, there are so few rules and regulations with coins and tokens being fueled by chatter on social media and speculative bets. And although this one you know, appears to be a joke, it will be no laughing matter if traders dabble in products like this, which they don't fully understand with money they can't afford to lose. Another one, is Hex. What do you think about that? Real or made up? Oh, so Hex. So I've heard of a Hex bug, which is one of those toys that's agony when you step on it. So this one's definitely made up as well. No, it's being sold (laughs) in the crypto world as well. It's a a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. And it claims on its website to be the first blockchain certificate of deposit. And it seems to offer an incentive to buyers who lock up or stake their holdings for a period of time with proceeds from the tokens, price rises and penalties if people withdraw early. So it seems highly reliant on price inflation. And as we've seen in the volatile world of crypto, when demand subsides, prices can fall dramatically. So given this potential volatility, traders really would be wise to to treat hex with extreme caution and tread very carefully around it like you do with those other hex bugs (laughs) so what about the tiger king token okay so now i know now i know what you're playing at i'm gonna say it's real is this linked to the netflix series you're right it certainly appears to be according to the tokens website Joe Exotic, the zookeeper who rose to fame on Netflix and was later jailed in the US, holds a percentage of the token supply. The purported idea behind the token is that the rise in its price will help him pay his legal and medical bills and help with tiger conservation. And it's really been on another volatile ride uh, recently with lots of social media influencers seeming to be jumping into the cage, but they should brace themselves for an equally savage drop, which could mirror Joe Exotic's rise and fall you know there are so many competing tokens riding on this popular wave and there is this real fickle attitude of social media influences so this tiger is likely to be burning too bright in the cryptocurrency jungle yeah just because you can bet your money on these crazy things presumably it doesn't mean it's a great idea certainly not the problem is with crypto assets is that you never know when demand will fall and the price will drop and too many holders are simply trying to ride this wave of speculation and that is not a sound investment strategy it's really important that if you are investing in crypto 
only do it on the fringes of your portfolio with money you are prepared to lose. Yes, and even before you're considering investing, you need to go back one more step and think about your finances as a whole. And things like whether you're carrying lots of expensive high cost debt, which you need to pay down first. And also things like whether you have emergency savings of three to six months worth of essential spending, which, which actually you should have one to three years worth when you get to retirement. So that can be quite a chunk of money if you want to keep frequenting your favourite restaurants, of course. And I don't know about you, Sarah, but all this talk about food has made me very hungry. Yes, it feels like it might be lunchtime. And we should, we should probably head off before you ruin my appetite with more talk of poo coins. Don't hold your breath, hold your nose. <laughs> <laughs> but before, before we go, I need to remind you that this was recorded on the 19th of July and all information was true at the time of recording. Yes, and there's also some housekeeping for us to tie up at the end. So please bear in mind that nothing in this podcast is personal advice. So you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Um, you should know also that investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and it's considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. And you can see our full non-independent research disclosure on the website for more information. So all that's left for me is to thank our guests, Morford, Sophie and Steve, and to thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back again in a fortnight. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe so you get a new, fresh podcast in your box as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.